This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So with that, though, in honor of Mother's Day, I was thinking this week about all of those phrases that you would say as a kid out on the playground that involved your mom. And no, not that one phrase. We're not saying that one. No. So actually, I was going to say the first that came to mind, which I just acknowledge is actually the second came to mind, is one that actually, as a, if you said it as a kid, it kind of made you walk funny, okay? And it was that one that went, step on a crack and you will break your mother's back. That's right. And like, who realized that as an eight-year-old, you held so much power over your mother's spinal column? You held it in your hand almost. But another phrase that we would say is, you swear in your mother's grave? Usually, that was a kid saying it to you after you promised to do something or after you said something, probably because you were dared to do something and dared to do something you weren't supposed to do. But we said that phrase so often. Do you ever stop and think, like, what does that phrase even mean? What am I doing when I swear on my mother's grave? What a swear something is to indicate the seriousness and the truthfulness of either what was said or what you were about to say or about to do. You're indicating you know, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, even if you can't handle the truth. It's kind of like you're, you're slapping a guarantee on the truth a little bit, isn't it? Which is kind of redundant because if it's true, it needs no guarantee. It is, in fact, truth. And then to swear by something, to swear uh, on something, like to swear on your mother's grave or to swear to someone, right? I swear to God. It's to use that thing as collateral, so to speak, against the truthfulness of your statement, right? Like when you put up collateral for a loan as an example. And so if you think about it, swearing on your mother's grave is essentially putting her eternity up as collateral for what it is you are about to say. Again, apparently we held a lot of sway over our mother's backs and eternities as children. But also it's to use that person as a witness, right? To vouch for the truthfulness of what you have said or are about to say. And I'd venture to guess, like swearing on our mother's grave, that's probably the first oath that many of us ever took out on the playground. And I'd venture to guess we probably didn't think twice about taking it, did we? We, we didn't think about it because we probably didn't really realize the ramifications of what we were saying and what we were not saying. And hear me say, I'm not saying that you actually put your mother's eternity at risk. But what does it indicate when we take an oath? What does taking an oath say and what does it not say about what we're saying? Well, this morning's passage here in Matthew 5, as we continue to uh, listen to the words of Jesus and learn to live out the way of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to continue with correcting six misunderstandings that we have. And these six misunderstandings, they are relational in nature, and they show us how when we misunderstand what it is that God has said, it causes confusion and leads to hurt, hurting ourselves and hurting others. That was true of the first three that we looked at, of anger, of lust, and of divorce last week. And it's true of this morning's topic as we hear Jesus correcting our misunderstanding of oaths. That's the name of our title, or the title of our sermon this morning, correcting our misunderstandings of oaths. And Jesus, what he's going to be doing, he's going to be speaking to the truthfulness and honesty of the words that we say. 
and the integrity and reliability and authenticity of the way in which we live as his followers. And so if you're taking notes, why don't you write this down? Here's our big idea this morning. Here's that one thing I want you taking away from the passage this morning, and it's this. Faithfully following the way of Jesus involves walking in truthfulness in all that we say and do. Faithfully following the way of Jesus. That's what this whole Sermon on the Mount series has been about. It involves walking in truthfulness in everything that we say and do. And please don't put an asterisk next to everything. It's everything, everything. And like we did last week, we're going to see Jesus first confront our misunderstanding of us, and then he's going to correct our misunderstanding of us, and then we're going to follow it up with some practical ways in which we can live this passage out in our daily lives. And so Jesus, he begins here by confronting our misunderstanding of us, and he does this, he confronts this in verse 33 where he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He begins the same way he began the last three, right? Effectively saying, you've heard what others have said God has said about us. If Jesus were were preaching this today, he might say, you've read on Facebook what others said God said about us. And while Jesus here, he's not uh, quoting a specific passage from the Mosaic Law, he is summarizing a number of passages in in what they say about swearing and and taking of oaths. An oath, for example, is it is a binding commitment on everything that you have said and everything that everything you said and will say or about to say or do is true, that you will do everything that you have promised. And now you might be thinking, well, should we not be taking vows at a wedding anymore? Should we not? We don't need to swear that? No. There's a, there's a difference between taking a vow and taking an oath. And let's, let's use it like this. An oath is swearing that you will do that. The, the vow, the commitment, the covenant, the contract, if you will, is just simply clarifying what you are committing to. We should clarify what it is that we're committing to and then simply commit to it. But what the oath is is then swearing on your mother's grave that you will do what you said you would do. And with, a, with an oath, if it turns out not to be true, for example, you lied under oath, you committed perjury, or you failed to do what it is that you promised to do, there's a penalty involved, financial, uh, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, and in the case of your mama, even eternal. If you swear in your mother's grave and what you say isn't actually true, as the saying goes, you've risked her eternity. Not true, that's not actually happening, just to clarify. But an oath is typically invoked on something sacred to the person taking the oath. And there's nothing more sacred than God, amen? Nothing more sacred than God in his name. And so swearing an oath to God does two things. It is invoking his divine being as a witness for what is said or promised, And it is inviting his divine wrath on you if what you say is not true or you fail to do what you promised to do. In the Mosaic Law, God, he permitted the taking of oaths in his name. He says in Deuteronomy 6.13, I got to confess, my uh, my contacts are like bad, bad today. I'm probably going to need to run out and get my reading glasses here in a little bit. I can't read the Bible at all up close. This is really embarrassing, so this is where I stumble. He said he can take oaths in his name in that passage. I didn't get it marked. (laughs) It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. By his name you shall swear. 
That was really embarrassing. We good? Pick it up, keep going? Okay. Now, in the Mosaic Law, though, God, he permitted the taking of oaths. And he, he, when he permitted them, he was stressing the reliability and following through on what it is that you said you would do, following through on your commitments. But not only did he stress the reliability, what I love is that God also stresses our punctuality and being on time with our commitments. And God, he says in, in Deuteronomy, he says in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 21, he says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Do not be late. He's calling us to be punctual. But not only that, um, it's important to see here that God didn't command the taking of oaths. He goes on to say in verse 22, but if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. There's no sin in not taking the oath. And in fact, he actually cautioned against it, saying, you shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. But over time, the, the Jewish people, they considered the formal name of God, of Yahweh, of Jehovah, so sacred that they avoid saying the name altogether. And they began using other names in its place, like Adonai or Lord, as you see in the English Bible. And the Pharisees, these experts in the Mosaic law, they were theological lawyers, so to speak. They were, uh, they were lawyers looking for a legal loophole in the law. And so a light bulb went off in their heads. They, they thought, you know what, if, if we're no longer using the divine, sacred name of God, then I don't think the oath is binding anymore. Or at least not as binding in the same way. We're not as obligated to the oath. And so what they did is they developed their own sort of house rule, so to speak. Right? Most everyone, if you play a game long enough, you eventually kind of developing your own house rules. You, you add to the rules. You take some away. And that's what they did. They, they created this wide uh, range of oaths with varying levels of obligation. Some were more binding than others. And they wrote their house rules down in a book called the Mishnah, their own interpretation, if you will, of the Mosaic Law, applying liberties to what God has said and adding restrictions to what God has said. And they devoted an entire section in the Mishnah just to the topic of oaths. And whatever you swore your oath on, whatever you swore it to, determined the level of obligation to the oath. It's kind of like when you were a kid, if you... If you crossed your fingers and put that behind your back because you made a promise, like the promise wasn't binding, was it? They wrote a whole section on exactly how to cross your fingers and put them behind your back. I don't know why we need a whole book. You just do that. Doesn't work, but here's what they did. Here's an example. If you swore an oath by Jerusalem, you were exempt. You were under no obligation to fulfill the oath. But if you swore the oath toward Jerusalem, you were bound by what you had committed. And, and as silly as it sounds, are we really that much different? Haven't we played games with our words? Aren't we playing games with the truth? We've created our own house rules. We've created our own liberties. We've added our own restrictions to what God has said. We're crossing our fingers behind our backs, so to speak, to justify the lie, to stretching the truth. 
All right, for example, we, we say things we don't mean, and then when we get called out on it, we say it was just sarcasm. I was just joking. How didn't you know that? We make commitments with no intention of ever following through with them because we just, we just wanted to be nice. They asked, and then I said, yeah, but I ain't doing it. And we lead people to believe one thing while the truth we know to be entirely different. And like the Pharisees, I think we've all become far too comfortable with twisting the truth, with giving half-truths, and in some cases just outright lying. And that's what Jesus is confronting here. He's confronting the games that we play with the truth. He's confronting the games that we play with what we say. He's doing it to the Pharisees 2,000 years ago, and he's doing it to us this very morning. And so then Jesus, he's going to go on, and he's going to correct our misunderstanding of oaths. That's what we're going to see next, is Jesus correct our misunderstanding of oaths. He begins in verse 34 saying, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Kind of sounds like Jesus is laying down the law right here, isn't it? There's no asterisk, there's no footnote in the Bible, there's no exception made. Do not take an oath ever under any circumstances. And I'd venture to guess if I asked you to raise your hand, a bunch of us are starting to think in our head, what if I get called to testify in court? Right? What do I do then, Pastor Ash? What if I get called before a Senate hearing? Because, you know, that might happen to some of us, right? What if they ask me to place my hand on the Bible and raise the other hand, and I don't know which hand it is, but what, what if they tell me i got to swear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Do, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to look the judge in the eye and say, sorry, your honor, but Jesus said I can't do this. And then who's going to bail you out when you get thrown in jail for contempt of court right then? Or you, you get brought before the Senate hearing, and you're like, I'm sorry, Mr. Senator, but on the device of my divine counsel, I plead the fifth. Is that what Jesus is calling us to do? Seriously, though, you ever notice how quick we are to go to the most absolute extreme cases as we're reading Scripture? Like, how many times have you been called? You don't have to raise your hand. Just think of it. How many times have you been called to testify in court before Senate, before Congress? I'll give you, you can even include Springfield in that. I'll even give you city council, uh, a township board. I don't care. How many times have you been called to testify and swear an oath there? And then think about the number of statements you make and the number of commitments you make in a single day. Your entire life's worth of legal oaths over here, statements and commitments and promises in a single day over here. I think Jesus is talking about, I don't think Jesus is talking about the thing that barely ever happens. Instead, I think he's talking about the thing that happens all day, every day, all the time. And thankfully, Jesus, he goes on to provide a bit more commentary, a bit more explanation here. He he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And then he kind of tells us why. He says, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by the hair or by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He's calling out the Pharisees here for being loose with the truth, for playing games with their words via oaths. And and what we see here as we unpack what Jesus says, there's there's four clarifications that I think we can pull from here, four things like we did last week that are clear and certain about oaths. And here's the first one that we see. It's that every oath invokes God. 
right? Every oath, no matter what you swear by, invokes God, either directly or indirectly. And that's true no matter what you swear by or on or to or toward. Why? Because God is the creator of all things and in control of all things. Amen? There is nothing not created and under the control of our sovereign heavenly Father. And Jesus, he recalls here what what God said to Isaiah in chapter 66, verse 1. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But that's not only true of heaven and earth, it's also true of the city of Jerusalem. He, he cites here uh, Psalm 48, where the psalmist says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. Holy is his mountain, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, the city of the temple, the city where God chose for his presence to dwell in a unique and special way among his people. That was all his. And even the hairs on our head for those of you that have hairs on your head still. You notice, I notice when I watch the video, I critique my sermons every now and again, and when my head is down, especially during prayer, there's this like glowing halo that comes from my head. It's getting bigger and it's starting to look like a tonsure. You know what a tonsure is? That's the monk haircut. One of these days, guys, I'm just going to come in, I'm going to have shaved my head and it's going to be over. Keeping the beard though. Like, no matter how much or how little hair you have, no matter how much Rogaine or Brian Erlacher Restore you use, no matter how many cans of Ron Popeil you're spraying on your head, no matter how much color you put in your hair, it starts to, starts to show through when the roots grow out, though, don't they? No matter any of that, God knows every single hair on your head because he is the one who created it. He is the one who put it there. It is his as long as you are blessed to have it. And so you substitute the name of God with something else when you take an oath. You are still invoking God when you take the oath because every oath invokes God. And here's number two. Here's the second thing I want us to see that we see as clear and certain about oaths. And it's that as a result of that, every oath is binding. Right? Every oath is binding. God, he, he says so in the Mosaic Law back in Numbers 30. He says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And I think that then leads us to the third thing here that we see, and that is that invoking oaths implies lying. Invoking oaths implies lying. There had to be a reason for the oath, right? I mean, think about it. If you need to invoke an oath, to prove that you're telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Doesn't that then imply you might not have been telling the truth before? Now I'm telling the truth. Back then, I'm not, not, not so sure. And if that's the case, why would I believe you when you take an oath and what you say under oath? Like lying, we all can agree, lying's a big deal to God, amen? God's not a fan of lying. In fact, um, he made a list of like 10 rules you might have heard of. In Exodus 20, 10 things. Do you know that two of those 10 kind of deal with this? That's how important lying is to him. He, he says in Exodus 20, you shall not take the name of your, the Lord your God in vain. Oftentimes we think about it as swearing or vulgality with, the, with God's name. That's true, but he's, it's broader than that. It's like, do not misuse my name. 
including in an oath taken by his name. But then he also goes on to say, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie to your neighbor. You shall not lie about your neighbor. You shall not do a half-truth or twist the truth about your neighbor. Invoking oaths implies lying. And so then in the fourth thing, we see why oaths are about, and it's that oaths were introduced because of lying. Right? That's why they were introduced. It was because of lying. Like, let's be honest, guys. Oaths should not exist, should they? Oaths should not exist. There's something that shouldn't uh, be here. They only exist because our yes is not always yes, and our no is not always no. And what Jesus says is that this comes from evil. This is the result of sin. We see that in Genesis 3 when the father of lies, as Jesus refers to him, slithered into the garden. And what did he do? He lied. He lied about what God said. And how did we respond to the lie? With a lie. As Eve twisted what God said. And it just continued from there. Abraham lied about his wife Sarah, saying that she was his sister. And it'd be one thing if he did it once, but he did it twice. Jacob, he went on to lie to his father Isaac, saying that he was his older brother Esau with the really hairy hands. Man, guys, that's just the first half of Genesis. We haven't even gotten to the second half yet where Joseph got lied to a few times and Joseph himself lied. Like scriptures filled with lies and the lies, they continue all throughout and they continue to this very day, don't they? And here's the thing. If there were no lies, there would be no need for oaths, would there? But lies exist, sin exists, and therefore God introduced the concept of oaths. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Discipleship, he explains it like this. He says, the Old Testament had expressed its condemnation of the lie by the use of the oath. The mere presence of the oath condemns the lie. See, just as God allowed for divorce because of the hardness of a heart, as we saw last week, God allowed for oaths because of lies, because of our sin. And so the point that Jesus is making here is that our entire lives should be lived as though they were under oath, right? Our entire lives should be lived as though we have sworn an oath to God. Everything that we say, everything that we do, our words should always reflect the truth, not your version of the truth, not the world's version of the truth, but truth as defined in God's word, amen? Knowing that on the day of judgment, Scripture says, we will give an account for each and every word, syllable, letter, punctuation mark that we have said and written. And so as Jesus' own half-brother James says in James 5.12, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? So that you may not fall under condemnation. God ain't playing around with truth. He's not playing around with lies. And so as followers of Jesus, right, we should be people known for speaking the truth, shouldn't we? But Paul adds something to that, doesn't he? We should be known for speaking the truth in what? Love. Not telling it like it is, speaking the truth in love. Not pointing the finger, but putting our arm around as we speak the truth in love. That means we don't hide the truth. Even when there's, there's consequences when the truth comes out oftentimes, isn't there? But we don't hide the truth. We don't tell half-truths. We don't tell a twisted version of the truth because we think that's what someone wants to say and we just want to make them feel better. And we do not require an oath to tell the truth, amen? We do not require that. We simply tell the truth. 
We live without the need for oaths, without invoking oaths, without requiring oaths, as though our entire life is lived under an oath to God. And so let's go back to the extreme question we asked on the outset. Just hear me say, I said this a couple years, last year when we went through James, I'll say it again now. If you're ever called to testify before a court or before Congress, number one, have a good lawyer. Number two, raise your right hand. Number three, put your left hand on the Bible. That's, I think, pretty, is that right? If you go the other way, I think they're going to correct you in the moment. It'll be okay. That's why you get a good lawyer. They'll tell you what you need to do. And swear the oath and tell the truth, knowing that that oath is entirely redundant for you as a follower of Jesus. That oath is entirely unnecessary because that oath is not why you're telling the truth. Rather, you're telling the truth because faithfully following the way of Jesus involves walking in truthfulness in all that we say and in all that we do. Make sense? We good with that? And so here's, um, I want to be helpful. And and I think this morning's sermon lends itself to uh, giving an opportunity to be helpful. I want to provide five practical ways that we as followers of Jesus can walk in truthfulness, that our yes can be yes and our no can be no. And hear me say, they don't jump to the extreme. These are the everyday things. So here's number one. And the first way, it deals with being trustworthy. And it's that do what you say you'll do. Mm. Do what you say you'll do. This morning as we were going through the slides, I started singing the song. I'm not going to do that now. But I wanted you to imagine me. Do what you say you'll do. That's us. We should do what we say we do, Right? Christians should be known as the most honest and dependable people there are. People who follow through on their commitments, on their contracts, on their covenants, on their promises, doing the things that we say we'll do. And yet I think many of us, we're prone to overpromise and underdeliver, aren't we? We kind of got an overpromise, underdeliver complex. And I think we've all had that done to us. We know the frustration that comes with people that fail to follow through on their commitments that they've made to us. And after a while, we start to say things like, don't hold your breath. I believe it when I see it. We we shouldn't be that person because after a while, you simply stop trusting them. They simply stop trusting you. And so rather than over-promising and under-delivering, let's only promise what you can deliver. That sound good? Only promise what you can deliver and then deliver what you promise. There's that big key at the end. And so if someone, a friend, a family member, uh, your boss or a coworker, someone asks you to do something, I want you to ask yourself these two questions here. Number one, do I have the time? Do I have the time? How do you know? I don't know. Look at your calendar. Hey, you want to have, you want, can we do a meeting on Wednesday? No, I'm actually going somewhere Wednesday. Check your calendar. Here's another one. Ask your spouse. Super helpful and practical today. Check your calendar. See if you have time. And then don't promise what you don't have time to deliver. And here's the second question let's ask ourselves. Do I have the ability? Do I have the time? Do I have the ability? Like you may need to ask for clarification. Hey, what exactly did you mean by that? I'm not sure if I can do that. You may need to ask for clarification. You may need to ask for help. Like I can't do that by myself. Don't promise what you do not have the ability to deliver. And then don't just ask yourself the questions. Tell the person the answer to those questions. Sorry, I don't have the time. Sorry, I'm not able to do that. And that's really hard to say, isn't it? 
It's hard to say no to something. It's hard to say no when you're asked to help with something. And sometimes you are unable. Sometimes we go out of our way to say no. I just don't want to do it. But let's let our yes be yes and our no be no by doing what we say we'll do. All of it. And here's number two. It's kind of a specific application of number one, and it's this. It's a phrase I think you've heard here before. Don't just say you'll pray. Stop and pray. It's a phrase we said a number of times. You're a phrase we started to say a couple of years ago when we did that prayer series that we called Saturated, right? Living a life saturated in prayer. And, and as Christians, I think we can agree, we're really good at saying Christian things, aren't we? We can sound so righteous and holy. Like, I'll pray for you. We've all said it. We've all been told it. Um, but as good as we are at saying Christian things, we're not always as good at doing Christian things, are we? We say we'll pray and we forget to pray. How often you told someone that you pray for them and you just, you just flat out forgot. You forgot to write it on your Palm Pilot. You forgot to make a note. And even worse, how many times have you told someone you'd pray for them and you really just had no intention of ever praying for them? That's why we do not say, I'll pray for you here. I just don't even want to hear the phrase, I'll pray for you. No, I'd rather hear this. I'd rather hear, like if you feel compelled in a conversation to pray, do this, just stop in the moment, mid-conversation, be like, hey, as Dan and I are talking about, hey, brother, can we just stop for a second? Can I pray for you right now? Don't say you'll pray, stop and pray in the moment. I don't care if you're in the lobby. I don't care if you're in a group of people. And if you're driving, don't close your eyes and bow your head. You can pray with your eyes forward. That's good. Just stop and pray. And if someone asks you for prayer, rather than saying, I'll pray for you, wait and say, I prayed for you. Big difference there, isn't it? Just real clear. Should our church ever say, I'll pray for you? Yes or no? No, don't say you'll pray, stop and pray. Don't say you'll pray, wait and pray and say, I prayed for you. I think it's far more loving. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. Don't just say you'll pray, stop and pray. And number three then is about reliability and it's this. Be where, you're say, be where you'll say, a lot of hard letters in here today what that says. Be where you say you'll be. And so it means like this. Let's start RSVPing and let's stop ghosting. Everybody know what ghosting is? No? Okay. Ghosting is when you tell someone you'll be somewhere and then you just don't show. You ghosted. Let's start RSVPing and let's stop ghosting. RSVP, it comes uh, from a French phrase, uh, répondez s'il vous plaît. Close enough, Rita? Okay. She teaches French. We've practiced this 15 times today. And what répondez, s'il vous plaît, means? If I got it, I got to say it again. It means respond, please. Three options. Yes, no, and the one we never take advantage of is maybe. I'm not sure yet. Did you know that maybe is an acceptable response to an RSVP? Do you know what is not an acceptable response to an RSVP? No response. Maybe is okay. No is okay. But, for, but too often we RSVP yes with no intention of ever going, don't we? we it's like we, we respond yes right away and we're like, I don't know if I can go, but I'll say yes. because You know why? We don't want to make them feel bad. But what do you think feels worse for that person? What do you think feels worse? Being told in the beginning, sorry, I can't make it? Or saying you're coming and this not showing up? 
especially if it's a wedding and they spent a good amount of money on that plate of chicken that's sitting there not being eaten. Doing a few weddings, I have had the benefit of eating that plate of chicken in addition to my plate of chicken. (laughs) And so while I'm grateful for your lie, I doubt the groom and bride are. And here's the thing. If a situation, let's say you RSVP, yes, and a situation comes up and you can't make it, like, that happens. Do you know what? Again, super practical today. There's these wonderful devices that we hold in our pockets that allow you to send a message almost instantaneously without even having to talk to the person. Sorry, something came up. I I can't make it. Can we reschedule? Like, people shouldn't wonder if we're going to show up or not because we show up when we say we're going to show up. Let our yes be yes and our no be no by being where you say you'll be. And here's number four. It's about integrity. It's about punctuality, and it's be there when you say you'll be there. Anybody who wanted to say amen right there has been the recipient of people being late. Let's do that one again. Be there when you say you'll be there. There we go. Let's be people that are known for being punctual, known for being on time. But for whatever reason... We always think, right, that, that it takes 15 minutes to get anywhere in suburban Chicago, doesn't it? I don't know if anything takes 10 minutes. Everything takes 15 minutes. Crossing the road takes 15 minutes. So everything, we think it takes 15 minutes, and so we think we can make that 15-minute drive in 10 minutes, don't we? We think we can do the 15 minutes in 10 minutes, when in reality, it takes us 20 minutes. We're off. There's a train. There's always a train. Case, you used to always post videos of you stuck behind trains. I love trains. Just don't love being held up by a train. Now, I get it. If you're a parent and you've got little kids, it's hard, isn't it? Amen? It's hard with little kids. And so I think there's like an unwritten rule that you get like a five-minute pass for every child under the age of five. And so you got five kids and you show up 24 minutes late. You're actually a minute early, I think. Uh, I might be a little off on that. I'm not quite sure what our uh, 21st century Mishnah says. But man, for the rest of us, when you tell someone that you're going to be somewhere at a certain time and you're late, do you know what that says to them without saying it? It says, my time's more valuable than yours. You can sit there and wait on me until I get there. And when you are habitually late, we, mm, I don't know if that mm because you are or mm because you know who is. And if they're sitting next to you, they got elbowed. When you're habitually late, it says over time, I just don't even care about you. I don't honor you as a human being. I don't honor your time. I don't honor what is important to you, what you needed to do. And so let's say you find yourself constantly 10 to 15 minutes late for a weekly function that starts at, I don't know, let's say 10 (laughs) a.m. Hypothetical. I don't know. Today's Sunday, right? Let's just say it's Sunday at 10 a.m., you know? Let's just go with that. I told you this was going to be very practical today. Here, here, here's this. Everybody, if you're taking notes, write this down. Type it. I don't care. If you find yourself always 10 to 15 minutes late for this weekly function at 10 o'clock, the idea is leave 15 to 20 minutes earlier than you normally do, And you know what happens? You arrive five minutes early. And here's what makes that so great, guys. Remember what we started last week, what we brought back last week? We brought back kids, we brought back communion, and we brought back 
You come five minutes early, you can grab a cup of coffee and come on in and sit down, chit-chat. You can say hi to the people that got here early. Because you got here early. That 15-minute drive you can't do in 10, it takes 20. I get that having kids takes a lot of time because here's the deal. You get in the car and you're about ready to leave and then someone's got to go potty, don't they? You just build a five-minute potty buffer in every time. And the worst case scenario is you get somewhere five minutes early. Bring a book. You could read. We just redeemed reading scripture, didn't we? You got that in your pocket? Man, super practical today. Who would have known? But also this. We're not always going to be on time. Things are going to come up. There's going to be a second train some days. There's going to be a third train some days, and we're going to be late. And so here's what we do. Send a text, say you'll be late, and say by how much you'll be late. Send a text, say you'll be late, say by how much you'll be late. Yesterday morning, we had preaching lab, starts at 8 o'clock. Got a text from one of the guys saying, I'm going to be five minutes late. Guess what? 8.06, he was here. I mean, that was pretty good. You were six minutes late. And said you'd be five minutes late. That was good. But that's a brother who respected the rest of the guy's time here. And he knew that we were going to start late and we were probably going to stay a little late. But we're grateful for it. Let our yes be yes and your no by no by being there when you say you'll be there. And here's number five. And this one's about authenticity. And this one might be the hardest for some of us. It's that we should be appropriately vulnerable and transparent with others. And please don't skip past that word appropriately. Be appropriately vulnerable and transparent with others. So I think we've developed this need to portray ourselves as someone other than who we truly are, haven't we? We're always, um, it's always been the case, but it's even more so with social media. Our Instagram uh, page has to look just pristine. Our kitchen's always clean. There's a pressure to look like we've always got it together when in reality, guys, like I don't know about you, but for this last year, it feels like we're just barely hanging on by a thread. And that thing's got a knot in it because it, it, it got cut once and I grabbed it and I tied it together. That's how we are. You know, there's a phrase we used to say that I think we should bring back, and it was this. It's okay to not be okay. You want to say that with me? It's okay to not be okay. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to portray that you have it all together. And so when someone asks how you're doing, don't say good if you're not good, right? Also keep in mind, there probably shouldn't be more words in the question than in the answer. How are you doing? Good. Pastor Dale started this thing with us a while ago. I love it. it uh, he'll ask you, how you doing? Good. No, how you really doing? Oh my gosh, my life's falling apart. Here, here we go. That follow-up question changes everything we found. And so when someone asks you how you're doing, you know, it's okay to say, I'm not doing that great. I've had a rough couple days. You can say that. And, and then you can feel free to follow it up with, I'd love to tell you more, just maybe not right now. You want to grab coffee? You want to grab breakfast? It's also okay for you to say, you know what, I just, I'm just not ready to talk about it yet, if that's okay, and then just respect that privacy. But man, let's not say, I'll pray for you, and let's just not say that we're good, unless you're good. If you're good, say you're good, and then say why you're good. Just don't say good. It's got like six O's in it. Say good the way Kay says hello when she comes up to read scripture, Amen. 
but there's a flip side to this too, and that's this. When you ask someone how they're doing, please, please, please do not ask the question if you are not prepared to invest the time and the emotion and the energy into listening to their answer. If you are not ready for that, that's okay too. Instead, just say, good morning, exclamation point, not a question mark. So good to see you, exclamation point, not a question mark. I'd love to catch up. You want to grab coffee later? At a time when you've checked your calendar and you've asked your spouse if you have time, that you can meet them for coffee and breakfast at a certain time, at which point you both then show up and you both show up on time. And if you can't show up on time, you're going to text them and say, I'm going to be this late. See how we brought it all back together? And let's just agree as a church family, like, let's just stop wearing a mask. Let's stop with the charade. Let's stop with the costumes. Let's stop pretending. And let's let our yes be yes and our no be no. Amen? Let's faithfully follow the way of Jesus by walking in truthfulness in all that we say and in all that we do. Because the more and more that our yes is not yes and our no is not no, the less we trust each other and the more isolated we begin to feel. Right? That phrase, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We begin to pull back. We begin to isolate. We trust people less. We, trust, we don't trust what they say. We don't trust what they promise to do. They're just, they're just empty promises that everyone's giving. And not only do we do that to each other, but when we have experienced that time and time again, we begin to do that to God, don't we? And we stop trusting God's promises. And I think that brings us back to the very reason Matthew wrote his gospel, doesn't it? It was to show us how every page of the Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus and how every promise God spoke through the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus. They find their yes, their amen in Jesus, the one promised by God, the one spoken of by the prophets. And so listen to the promises that Jesus has made to you. And despite how everyone else may have failed you, Jesus will never fail. Jesus promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. Amen? He said, I will be with you always till the end of the age when I come back. Jesus promised that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing, including your own sin. Because Jesus died to forgive that sin that separated you from God and reunited you to God for those who put their faith in Christ, who repent of their sin, who turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. Jesus promised that sin and death no longer have hold over you. His victorious resurrection has freed us from the clutches of sin. The chains of sin have been broken. Death is no longer the end. We will take our last breath in this earth, and then we will experience eternity in the presence of God. He has promised that, and it will come true. And Jesus promised that he will return. And in his second advent, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The back pain we feel when we wake up in the morning will be no more, amen. There will be no more breaking of hips. There will be no more surgeries. Doctors and nurses will be unemployed in this kingdom of heaven. They will have to find new employment. Therapists will be unemployed. Pharmacists will be unemployed. And God's got something even better for y'all to do up there. 
we're grateful for you here, but man, you got something new to do up there. Because when Jesus returns, he will right every wrong and he will restore all that is broken. And when we come to the Lord's table and we partake in the Lord's supper, we remember that, we celebrate that, we taste and we see that the Lord is good. We see his faithfulness on the cross where God fulfilled his promise to rescue us from sin and to restore us as his people. Christ shed his blood to cleanse us of our shame and our guilt, and he gave his life to forgive us of our sin and reconcile us to God. The cross shows us God's yes is always yes. Amen? His yes is always yes, and Jesus Christ is that yes. He is our amen. And so I'm going to give you a moment here to pray silently, and then I'm going to pray over us as a family. And then I'm going to lead us in taking the, the communion elements that are either there in the seat back in front of you or on the, the ground there if there's not a seat in front of you. And so let's go ahead and let's bow our heads and let's spend the next minute reflecting, repenting, and remembering that love and that grace that God showed us on the cross. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.